One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter nine, the writing on the wall. What's going on here? What's going on? Attracted, no doubt, by Malfoy's shout, Argus Filch came shouldering his way through the crowd. Then he saw Mrs. Norris and fell back clutching his face in horror. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our only announcement today is that we have a new pilgrimage that is available for registration. Dana Schwartz is going to be leading a Frankenstein pilgrimage, and I am lucky enough to be going on this trip with your wife, Colette Potts. That's great. I wish I could travel abroad, but I'm glad Clyde gets to go. <laughs> I'm very excited about this trip. Dana Schwartz is the host of the amazing podcast, Noble Blood, and her favorite novel is Frankenstein. And so this will be a reading and writing trip. And I'm really excited. So to find out more, go to notsorryworks.com and click on Common Ground Pilgrimages. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story today through the theme of hate. So, Vanessa, in our house, hate is a bad word. It's a four-letter word. Like, we don't actually allow our kids to say the word hate. We don't describe things we hate because we feel like hate is a word that carries more weight than other words, Like right? Even words like dislike or detest, right? Like, hate signifies something else. And I really want to kind of get to the bottom of what is the difference. But one situation really challenges me when I think about that because about a year ago, right now, the then president of the United States, Donald Trump, contracted COVID. And I remember at that time harboring an internal wish that he would die from COVID. And I remember also there was some discussion like on Twitter and in, in the media about like whether it was right to have this wish or not among folks who believed that Donald Trump was causing a great deal of harm in the world. 
And I had to be honest about that feeling that I wanted him to die, but I also wanted to reckon with like what that meant as a person who I like to think of myself as a person who wishes good for people and is not hateful and says that hate is a four-letter word, a bad word, and not one that we should use in our house. The way I thought about it was that, you know, unlike the characters in this book, I am not a wizard. My wish that he will die will not actually make him die. If I had actually the person in front of me, I probably wouldn't, you know, try to strangle him to death or anything. That wish was only a wish, and I knew it was a wish, which is an important distinction. And and honestly, what I wanted more than for him to die was for him to be transformed by this experience, for him to actually use his power over the people that he has influence over in order to make better and positive change. And this is the thing about hate, I think. Hate is a particular kind of animosity which wishes only ill for the other and no good. Only ill for the other and and not just ill, but like wishes like the the annihilation of the other, that the other one will be snuffed out of existence. And this is why I was troubled by this, because I did want Donald Trump to die, but I wanted more for him to become a better person. And I just thought him dying was more likely than him becoming a better person, (laughs) right? And that's also, I think, describes why certain forms of violence and antagonism can be described as hateful, like racism or anti-Semitism, or in this book, anti-mudblood Slytherinism, because... For people who harbor that kind of hate, the people they hate haven't done anything wrong to them. The offense is their existence, right? And so the only answer to that offense is to to destroy them, right? It's not like they hurt me or they offended me and so I am angry or I want vengeance. Like hate is an emotion and a response which hates the existence of the other person, right? Like this is really distinctive about hate. It, it has no justification. It has no merit. It's not like the other has harmed me and therefore I, I hate them back or I want to harm them back. It's that the other exists, and that is the offense, and I want to snuff them out entirely. And that's also why I think about hate as like a corollary to love, you know, appropriately, I guess, because love is the same way. Love doesn't love because, love is not esteem or admiration, or I don't love you because you've done something for me necessarily. I ought to love you because you exist, <laughs> right? And I and if I love you because you exist, then what I want for you is for you to exist more fully and better in the world. Whereas hate's the exact opposite, where I hate you for no reason except that you exist. And that's why even my kind of hatefulness towards Donald Trump, like there were reasons for it and there was a response to it. And I wish that there were better solutions to the harm that he caused in the world than the snuffing out of his existence. But at this point, honestly, both then and now, I think that the easiest solution to the harm he causes might be the end of his existence. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Matt, because one of the ways that you are describing hate makes me wonder whether sometimes hate isn't even an emotion, right? It's just a belief of superiority that sometimes isn't even affective. And so I'm, I'm interested in talking more about that. Vanessa, it is time for our 30 second recap. My favorite part of every episode. I have no idea what happens in this chapter. Okay. Count me in, I'm going to count you in. Three, two, one, go. So Mrs. Norris has been petrified, and Filch is just heartbroken over it, and Gilderoy Lockhart is like, let's go into my office and discuss it. And and um, and Dumbledore is like, don't worry, you can be revived. She can be revived. And Filch is like, punish the kids. And the kids then decide that they have to figure out who the heir of Slytherin is after they talk to Professor Binns. And Hermione is like, what we can do is we can create that potion, Polyjuice potion, and we can find out if Draco Malfoy is the heir of Slytherin by pretending to be Slytherin. Wow, that was not my best work, Matt. 
That, that's okay. I, I'm more and more, I'm coming to the realization that the 30 second recap is not about doing good work. <laughs> it's, it's about waiting 30 seconds and then moving on. No. Really? The 30 second recap is a theological gesture of welcome. It is implying to people, you do not have to have read the chapter in order to participate in this conversation. We will tell you everything you need to know. And That's a lie. We will not tell them now, everything you need to know. Hold on. We will fail. Hold on. <laughs> that is the goal. And then the goal. there is like a humble failure that is like, do you know what? Even we don't know. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. So uh, Mrs. Norris is petrified and Gilderoy is still a dweeb and uh, Dumbledore is investigating and they, they determined that Mrs. Norris is not dead. Um, and Filch accuses and uh, Snape suggests, but Dumbledore lets them off. But everyone else believes that Harry is the heir of Slytherin. And they go to the crime scene to investigate and they see snake, uh, spiders and a puddle and they talk to Moni Myrtle. And then they decide that the real heir must be Draco. And so they come up with a plan to, to go snoop in the Slytherin common room. Bye. So, Matt, you and I both skipped a very important thing that we that happens in this chapter, which is that like the central thing about hate yes. in the whole chapter yep. is the thing we didn't talk about. Yep. yep. Which is the the foundation of the four houses of Hogwarts, or the foundation of Hogwarts, which then turns into the foundation of the four houses. And yeah, there really seems to be this hate according to your definition and according to I think most definitions that Salazar Slytherin had for not pure blood wizards. And to me, this kind of hatred is based in a fear of losing power that I have the edge, right? I am white and therefore I have the edge. I am Christian and therefore have the edge. I am straight. I am a pureblood, and therefore I have this little bit of, you know, social cachet, this power over others. And if I admit the humanity of them, then I have to give up some of my power. Do you think that that is what's going on with Slytherin? That's interesting. Yeah, I think that is a good characterization of this Slytherin case. I think it probably is the right diagnosis because what we know is that wizards like Hermione are just as capable and just as powerful as quote-unquote, pure-blood wizards, like Salazar Slytherin hoped to, to educate. So there is no actual power differential other than prestige, other than status. And so it makes sense. It is, it is kind of a way to claim power by to say, no, the actual power, actual privilege should only go to those who have this particular status. I mean, what's so interesting is this belief still has its impacts in the housing system, but also it seems to have really so discord amongst the four founders of Hogwarts, right? Which is yeah. this admissions argument turning into you have now come to represent something that is yeah. no longer fully human to me. All you do is stand in for this hateful belief. And therefore, yeah. there's like this logical response. It's reasonable, maybe not logical response, which is to hate back. And mm -hmm. therefore want to separate yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the, the word hate is used once in the chapter. We should look at that scene. And there's also the word detest mm -hmm. is used, which I think is close, right? But there's also something about when the separation happens that like Slytherin still claims Hogwarts as his mm -hmm. own, right? It's not like I'm going to go start another school just for purebloods. 
the claim Salazar-Slytherin makes is, no, you all have betrayed the truth of Hogwarts, and the truth will hide in the walls until a time comes when it can be purified of all you, all you folks who have the wrong idea, right? That's another way in which this is about claiming power, right? The, the institution is contested. Like some folks say the institution is should be more inclusive. And this one folk says, no, it should be more exclusive. And instead of starting his own institution, he just kind of sets the stage for that institution to like purify and exclude others. There is something about like claiming power in that. Like this is, this is, I, we are not going to lose this place. This place belongs to us. I find the whole heir of Slytherin thing very confusing because what does it mean to be a true heir of Slytherin? Like, wouldn't Slytherin know who that is and wouldn't it just be his kid? I mean, I think I think it's confusing for a reason, right? Because it's kind of giving the lie of this kind of blood tie legitimacy. I mean, there's actually a lot of scholarship around this in contemporary theorizations of race and identity um, and religion as well. That like there's this whole logic of inheritance, direct bloodline inheritance as a thing that gives us our identity. But if we dig around very much, that doesn't really hold in almost every circumstance. Heritage and bloodlines becomes like this story that we tell about ourselves to to connect ourselves to the identities we want to be connected to. And that's absolutely true with things like race or other kind of identities. So what is what do you think the heir of Slytherin is? I mean, if we just think about this, it has to be a descendant of Slytherin who hates as much as he does, right? I don't think it has to be a descendant of Slytherin. This is what Uh, I mean. Like the, the word heir doesn't need to be taken literally unless they want it to be taken literally, right? When they're talking about Hermione Granger, the bloodlines are absolutely crucial because she's a person that they believe should not be empowered with inclusion in the wizarding world. But I mean, Voldemort isn't pure blood. No, but he is <laughs> right? an heir of Slytherin. So I think that Rowling is right. making the argument that to some extent it needed to be an actual heir of Slytherin. Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess that's right. But operating within this chapter, even within like the way students are thinking about it, like it as long as you're Slytherin, if you're in the house, you're potentially an heir, which is why Malfoy, who has no obvious familial connection to Slytherin, is in the house and can can be the heir. These, these identities are genetic when hatred wants them to be genetic, or they're just affinitive when it wants them to be based on other identities. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because Justin Finch Fletchley thinks that it could be Harry, right? Like some people do think it could be Harry, even though he was sorted into Gryffindor. And so there does seem to be this like complex understanding of what this could be. I'm just having like a good time imagining Salazar Slytherin looking at his daughter and being like, you don't hate enough. You're not my true heir. You're not my true daughter, even though you're pure blood, right? And so like- yeah. Obviously, it wasn't an heir between Salazar Slytherin and Tom Riddle, whereas he he must have had like kids and grandkids and great grandkids at the school between all of this. But he meant something else by it. He meant a both and thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is kind of what I mean. Just to put a finer point on this question, I'm reading book seven to Sam right now, right? And we just read very early in the book where uh, Bellatrix is just denying any meaningful relationship to Remus and Tonks, right? Like they are connected by blood, but because they believe the wrong thing, that blood tie no longer counts, right? So like right. blood matters when it matters, but blood doesn't matter when it doesn't matter, right? Which which sure. gives the lie to the whole ideology that it really is about gathering around hatred, not gathering around like actual genetics, right? Yeah. 
Judaism has really complicated ideas about this, right? There, There's a law in Judaism that you have to welcome a convert as if they yeah. are a Jew, right? That it is your responsibility to entirely welcome a convert. But if your child marries a non-Jew in Orthodox settings, you sit Shiva for them. Yeah. You act as though they have died. Yeah. So there's like a an acknowledgement in Judaism that you don't have to have like pure Jewish blood yeah. to be fully Jewish, yeah. even though if it, you're biologically a Jew, it has to be that your mother was Jewish. But then there's this loophole of like, but we can grieve for you and mourn yeah. you as dead if you marry the wrong person. Yeah. It's the psychological minefield to like figure out what it means to be like ethnically or racially a yeah. Jew. Or religiously a Jew, right? Like all those things or religiously. overlap, right? Because a person whose mother, I don't want to speak for your community, obviously, but a person whose mother is no. ethnically Jewish and never practices, but is culturally Jewish in some ways, or maybe not even potentially, would still be identified as yeah. Jewish in meaningful ways by the Jewish community. But obviously that's not true for converts. Converts convert because they are actively practicing, right, within the religious strictures of right. Judaism. Yeah. And then, I mean, to extend the metaphor before we move back to Harry Potter, right, there are Jewish definitions of Judaism and then there are anti-Semitic definitions of Judaism, yep. right? So who Hitler considered a Jew was different than who Jews yeah, considered a sure. Jew. Yeah. And I feel like that is the same in this housing system, right? Where technically the heir of Slytherin is someone who wouldn't have gotten into Hogwarts according to Slytherin's definition because he's a half-blood, right. right? It's just like this stuff is it boggles the mind. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great place to transition to the one location in the chapter where the word hate is used, right? So in the last chapter, Harry discovered that that Filch is taking these quick spell courses. And then in this chapter, in conversation with Ron, he learns that that there's a term for this in the wizarding community, that that Filch is a squib, that Filch, although he comes from a wizarding family, does not have magical abilities, or at least not any discernible ones, or ones that are recognized by the wizarding community. Um, and interestingly, Ron says, oh, this must be why he hates us, we who are wizards, right? The implication is that, more than an implication, is that he is he says he's, he hates us because he's bitter. And by that, I think he means jealous, like resentful that that the students have powers that he doesn't have. I don't know if it's not more complicated than that. I mean, it might be part of it, but it also might be because he's been treated poorly his whole life as a person without magical abilities by the wizarding community. And so he does resent this, the children, not for anything they've done, not actually because Harry has muddy boots, but just because Harry's there, just because Harry kind of reaffirms for for Filch all the exclusions he's been made to suffer throughout his life. There's something about the secrecy of this, which makes it worse, right? Like, and this is where maybe Filch is right. Because there is a culture of marginalizing people who do not have magical ability, he is afraid to tell people that he doesn't have magical ability. Whereas one solution to this problem would be for teachers to say to their students, hey, Filch has to clean with a regular old mop. So don't wear muddy boots into the school. Like, let's take care of Filch a little bit. He does a lot for you. He cares for the place. Do something for him, right? But that would depend upon making this identity known. And because it's an identity which does carry, like, real marginalization with it, he quite understandably wants to keep it secret and hide it from others, right? It's, it is, yes, it is that, that the school should give him a magical mop. Right. But if there were not already a system or a structure in place that severely marginalized him, they could just tell the community, hey, here's a person who has needs. Let's accommodate his needs. 
Matt, I want to argue that this incident that Mrs. Norris is wrapped up in is a hate crime, right? Enemies of the air beware, right? There's a threat. It is a race-based threat or an identity-based threat. And that this is, yeah, I mean, to use your definition, but I think to use just like a legal definition in the United States, right? This is ethnically motivated violence or graffiti and defacing of property. So Filch has this like pretty, I would argue, hateful response, right? He says, you've murdered my cat. You've killed her. I'll kill you. And it's this very like, I mean, it's more extreme than Hammurabi's code because I think Hammurabi's code would be like, you killed my cat. Now I'll kill your cat. But it is this like, tit for tat, snuffing out for snuffing out. You are not acknowledging my humanity. So I would like to not acknowledge your humanity. Like this is a hateful sentiment. I don't think that's hate. That's exactly what I mean. It's not to justify Filch's sentiment, it's to clarify the distinction, right? Because he says, you murdered my cat, now I'll kill you. Like the the thing that stirs up the hateful action or the violent action is that you did something to me. Like I didn't, I didn't want to kill you before, Harry. I just wanted to hang you from the rafters because you had muddy boots, right? <laughs> now that you killed my cat, I want to kill you. I'm responding to the act. The offending thing is the action. That's the offense, right? What's written on the wall is you mudbloods who I don't even know because I created this chamber of secrets hundreds of years ago. Every one of you mudbloods here who have done nothing to harm me, I hate you because you exist. I want to destroy you because you exist, not because you harmed me at all, but because you exist. Like that's, to me, that's the distinction. I would characterize what Filch is feeling as like vengeance or resentment, right? And we can have episodes where we talk about vengeance and resentment. And we know we talked a little bit about tit for tat stuff on our forgiveness episode last time. But to respond with violence or to respond with anger and resentment, even violent and anger and resentment in response to violence and anger and resentment, that's to respond to the act, right? To to have no act that occasions your response and just to resent and have anger at a person or people because they exist, that's that's when it escalates for me to 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 hatred and becomes a thing which has no rationale and is therefore like really evil. So I'm going to want to die on this upcoming hill okay. then. Okay, upcoming hill. Which is the hill right in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. The hill that I am about to charge. Okay. I'm going to be willing to die on it if you fight me Okay. on this hill. Okay. Snape hates Gryffindor. And that is evidenced in the way that he is like, I think that Harry is probably innocent, but he should probably be benched from the Quidditch team anyway. And I think sports fans often hate other sports fans simply for existing. You are from Philadelphia and therefore you are an Eagles fan and therefore I hate you. This is just hatred. He's like... I think I think Snape is childish, not hateful, uh, right? I think that he still bears resentment, justified resentment from the w- for the way he was bullied as a, as a child by Gryffindors. And so he still has reason to be mean and petty towards Gryffindors. But the fact that he does all this work to try to protect them also on the slide means that he doesn't actually wish for the annihilation of Gryffindor House or even any particular Gryffindors. I think he wishes for the annihilation of them on the sports pitch. Sure. And I think that it being figurative 
still encapsulates hate in a figurative right? sense. Right, but I in a figurative sense, but but there's no other word for it. You simply want the annihilation because of right to quote Jerry Seinfeld, like to quote the laundry because they have that identity that they're wearing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I think yeah, but I think that it's again. This is it's it's a figure of usage, right? But like what they want is what sure. Snape wants is for Gryffindor to be embarrassed, to be belittled, to be right, to be to made small, to be to be made small, which is the way he what he experienced, right? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, I have one other place that I would like for us to talk about hate, which is that I think that you can be so thoughtless that your actions are impactful in an, like, in an annihilation based way, right? That like you are so oblivious to the pain and fact of others that you are treating them as if they are invisible. And that is embodied in Gilderoy Lockhart, right? Like he is so thoughtless to Filch's pain. He is making this about him in ways that it is clearly not about him. You know, we've talked about him as narcissistic before, but like, you know how negligence is a form of abuse. This seems like obliviousness to the extent that it is hateful. Yeah. Like he does not think that Filch is a person with feelings. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's actually a really interesting way to use a moment in this chapter, which doesn't explicitly talk about hate to help us think about 
hate in our world and in our lives, right? Because a lot of this conversation so far has circulated around particular forms of identity-based hatreds, especially like racism or anti-Semitism, right? And the most obvious forms of that hatred are like the ethno-nationalist super-violent ones, which write things on walls, graffiti on walls, and like march around with tiki torches or whatever, right? But as we all know, there are also forms of racism which just ignore or, you know, microaggress by not paying attention or or by just assuming the insignificance of, right? Like, it's one thing to wish for the other not to exist. It's another thing or another form of that to just sort of act as if the other doesn't exist or operate in the world so that their existence is insignificant or unimportant to you. It's not the same as intending or wishing the non-existence of the other, but it it does have, like implications in the world and unharmful ones and so is related to hate and it's why we can talk about some of these structural or microaggressing actions as racist ones as well as as unconscious bias right like it's not you're actively wishing harm for someone but if if your ignorance or neglect of a person occasions harm for them then we should pay attention to the harm not the the intention We're now moving on to the Jewish practice of Chavruta, in which I'm going to bring a question and also an answer. And then you will answer with your own answer and a question. And I'm very excited. Okay. So the question I have brought to you is that Hermione has completely flipped. She has done a 180 in just one book in one year from non-rule breaker to complete rule breaker, right? She is like, we should make a polyjuice potion and we would be breaking about a hundred school rules, she says. And then in the same chapter, she like won't let Ron read her essay. And she's like very mad at the boys earlier in this book. And I'm wondering sort of what this is about for Hermione. And my answer is, I think that she has learned to not trust adults and is now entirely trusting her own inner sense of justice. And it's like adults betrayed her in book one. They let her get attacked by a troll. They did not, you know, fight Quirrell. They have just like completely failed her. And so she is like, okay, that's it. It's all on me. I know right from wrong. And that inner sense is going to lead me into deciding which rules should be broken and which ones should be maintained. What are your thoughts? I think that's a good answer. I think it's funny because um, (laughs) I have a similar answer, but I'm going to frame it differently. And it just, I remember the stories you've told in the past about how you were a a, a child in classrooms who was constantly in arguments with your teachers. <laughs> and, and I was also a child in classrooms and in every setting who was entirely obedient to every adult that, that I encountered. Because my response is similar. I'm just going to frame it differently. I think it's two related things, right? I think one is that Hermione is a mudblood. Mm. Hermione is a target, right? So like this is personal for her. It's not like she can be Ron and be complacent. Like, if there is not somebody acting, sort of like Harry at the end of book one, right? Like, if somebody doesn't do something, this is actually come directly on me. Like, I am going to be the one that gets it. So the, there's an urgency to it. And I think it's related to, this is where it 
dovetails more with your response. I think it's related to her sense that I don't know if she doesn't trust the adults anymore because I think that she probably totally trusts McGonagall or whatever. I think she doesn't trust the rules anymore, right? Or she knows that the rules don't always uphold the just. And it seems to me what has been consistent for her since the beginning has been like this commitment to what is right, the right way to do things. And I think like a lot of children and a lot of people who are younger and naive, they assume, because they're brought up to believe this, they assume that the rules always stand in for the right. But in the first book, she learned that the rules don't always stand in for the right. And that's why in this book, when the rules do seem to accord with her own sense of justice or what she believes is right, to use your language, like cheating in class, she's like, no, you can't cheat because that's not right. But when the rules obviously are frustrating or complicating her relationship to justice or what she thinks the right thing is, then she's happy to flout them. I'm going to dispute you on she trusts McGonagall. I don't think that she trusts McGonagall to be aware of what is going on in the chapter. I think that she has also really lost faith in adults, right? Like McGonagall didn't see that Quirrell was the bad guy and that they were housing the bad guy in Hogwarts. And so I think that she trusts McGonagall on an interpersonal level. I think if she told McGonagall a secret, she would trust that McGonagall would keep that secret and that McGonagall is a woman of integrity and a person who is constantly trying. But I think that part of what she has lost faith in is other people's ability to see the things that she sees, right? She's the one who stands up to bins, right? Yeah. So again, I think it's, I think insofar as adults represent the rules or enforce the rules, she trusts them when she thinks that they're in the right and she doesn't when they're in the wrong, right? So I don't think it's a blanket loss of faith in adults. And maybe that's not what you're saying, right? Because I think that in matters of cheating and school performance, she entirely trusts McGonagall in instruction and even like instruction in potions, like Snape is the teacher. So she trusts him entirely when, when he delivers information to her about how to brew potions, right? I think she recognizes, and maybe this is what you mean by loss of trust. She doesn't assume that they always know better than she does. Yeah. And she's lost her faith in the fact that they will be able to protect her. Yeah. Right? She's not like, oh, there's someone out there attacking mudbloods. I'm fine. McGonagall's on it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Which is just something that I feel like I still struggle with. Like, I was so raised to believe that the systems have it covered that I'm like, it'll work out. It'll be fine. And I still have to push myself to be like, nope, that's not true. And who are the systems actually protecting? And right, there are moments where it's really clear to me. And I just love that Hermione is like a one and done lesson. Nope, (laughs) the system isn't going to do enough. I'm going to insert myself. So that my question kind of follows from yours, Vanessa. Why don't the systems work? Like McGonagall, who I just named, and Dumbledore, and even Snape, none of them want the rise of Slytherin. None of them want the Chamber of Secrets to open. Unlike Bins, I think at least a couple of these folks do believe that the Chamber exists and want to prevent its opening. Why does the system fail? Like, why does it take children in these books to respond to these incidents and catastrophes at, at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. I mean, that's that's the $25,000 question, right? Like, that's if we knew the answer to that, by analogy, we could solve so many of the problems of our, of our, of our world, right? I think there is something about, maybe it's exactly 
Hermione's mistrust. That is the thing that makes the children capable of being the difference because these adults, for all their good intention, are too deep in the institution. They trust it too much, right? In the last book, when the owl sends Dumbledore back to the ministry, they assume that it's a legitimate owl, whereas the kids are like, that's not a legitimate owl. We need to go do this, right? Like, maybe it is that mistrust which allows them to see more clearly, to discern more carefully what is actually going on and where the risks are. And these adults who trust the institutions too much, who have not lost enough faith in themselves yet, can't respond adequately. I don't know. What do you think? I also think, not in a glib way, I think to some extent it is also capitalism and the fact that children to some extent are outside of it. Because, right, McGonagall's job is to teach and be deputy headmistress and to be the head of Gryffindor House. And so she does not feel as though it is her job to address this heir of Slytherin problem. And I think that there is something about a child being outside of a specific role that allows them the freedom to think more broadly in their scope, right? I wish really? that— I don't think you, I don't think you believe that, Vanessa, right? Because I've heard you talk so many times about how McGonagall legitimately cares about her students. Like, she cares I about their well-being. I think she cares about her students. So the heir of Slytherin thing is a problem. If, like, if, if they're— if the chamber's been opened and the basilisk is free and it's going to come attack students, and there are students who are actually experiencing harm in front of her eyes— she, of course she would care to, not just for capitalist reasons, of course she'd care to protect them, right? I think she cares. I just think that it doesn't occur to her that it matters more than teaching transfiguration. I don't think, I think that we, yes, I don't think that it occurs to her, not out of malice. I don't think people flip into emergency mode, right? Like, I think it takes people a really long time to say, oh, my God, we are in a totally different reality now, right? How many people had to die of COVID before we were like, no, we actually have to shut down certain marketplaces? Yeah, that's fair enough. I don't know if that's because capitalism supports Hogwarts. That's just because McGonagall's a human being who has trouble transitioning to emergency, I think, right? Because we actually don't even know how fees are paid at Hogwarts or what. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> right? I just like, think maybe, right. But I think that adults see certain things as their jobs. And like, she's like, Dumbledore's on it. Dumbledore told me that he's on it. Right. And there's, there's just so many things wrapped up in that. She would have to go into his office and start screaming, being like, so we have to get every kid out of this castle. Like, there are threats on the wall. Like, there should be a robust argument happening about the safety of the kids that we at least see no evidence of, right? Um, we are in a meeting after this attack with Lockhart and Snape and Filch and Dumbledore and McGonagall. And there is no, oh my God, this is horrible what happened to Mrs. Norris. What if it had happened to a child? I just think people don't get their wires tripped into that. It's not clear to me that that's like loyalty to a job because it's my paycheck. To me, it's like, I trust this institution. Nothing bad could happen at Hogwarts. Why would anything right. bad happen at Hogwarts? We got it, right? I think it's more complacency than, than um, and, and of course, our complacency is caught up in, we, we live in a neoliberal capitalist society, so it's all caught up in one another. But I, right. it seems to me that like, it's not because she think, doesn't think it's her job to take care of the children. It's because she thinks the institution will do it, whether or not she's paying enough attention to it or not, right? Right. Yes, I, I more meant it like generally as like 
we live in this industrialized way of thinking where we feel as though the systems sort of will fix themselves and forget that we are the systems. Yeah, that's totally fair, right? Thank you for uh, returning Havruta to us. Vanessa, I look forward to bringing a question next week. Now we have a voice memo from Kate. Hi, Matt and Vanessa. I wanted to write in after I heard your latest episode uh, because of Vanessa's description of being impatient to wear her new clothes as a child, or rather to be patient, as you elaborated on. Uh, I am an actor and I do a lot of classical work, um, and it, it made me think of uh, the phrase that Juliet says as part of her uh, Gallop Pace monologue, which is, so tedious is this day, as is the night before some festival, to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. <laughs> Your story was the example that Shakespeare was talking about there, and I was just delighted to hear this piece of life imitating art. Thank you both for all you're doing uh, with the podcast and also with Not Sorry in general. It's a delight to hear you both. Thank you, Kate, for that delightful voice memo, which I think the point of it was that Vanessa is as brilliant and insightful as Shakespeare. Was that the point? I think that was the point, right? That's what I took from it as well. That's my takeaway, for sure. Kate, I also love that. One of my definitions of God or one of the ways that I understand God as an atheist is like art speaking to us from hundreds of years in the past. And, you know, this like human thing, which is that Shakespeare 400 years ago was going to understand what it was like for me to want to wear my amazing shirt shorts match set at my bowling birthday party. And so thank you for pointing that out. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been lost. David Lavin, who was 57, a poker player and a dad joke enthusiast. Jean, who was 56, a mother, a friend, and an education advocate who died as a consequence of her depression. Pauline Orlandini, who was 82, a grandma, a general badass, who had a brilliant mind. Dini Nagalkirk, who was 88, and Oma, who loved Harry Potter. Jack Loire, who was 88, was a stained glass artist and a beloved great uncle. Tyler Jeffrey, who was 17, and the life of the party was persistent and loving. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I mean, I'm obviously blessing Filch because, A, because I find his reaction to Mrs. Norris maybe being dead relatable as someone who cries regularly thinking about the fact that my dog will one day die. 
I just really related to this, but also everybody is like, Filch, don't worry about it. She's just petrified. But that is like precious time without his beloved pet. And I just don't feel like people are being understanding enough. I think that when your pet dies, you should get bereavement leave. I like, I. this is horrible what has happened to him. And so I would like to offer a blessing for Filch and to all of us out there who love our pets and especially to those people who are grieving a pet. What about you, Matt? I would like to bless Myrtle. The first time I read this novel, reading it for Cam, my eldest, Myrtle was just a comic figure. And I think Roland kind of plays Myrtle for laughs. But I think now that Cammy is the age of Myrtle or about the age of Myrtle, and I just think about like that Myrtle died at school and has been like trapped in this bathroom, kind of ostracized by students for all this time. And she's she's just really sad. It's a really sad character to me. I, I don't I don't see her as a comic figure that much in this reading. And I just she she makes me sad when I read about her. So I want to give a blessing to for Myrtle. Amen. And a blessing for Cammy. Vanessa, next week we're reading chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. We need to pick a theme. Do you have a theme for us? I want to use Sophie's suggestion, which is dignity, because it means I get to tell a story about Amy, our nine-year-old, who's the most dignified person I know. I think that's a dignified choice. I can't wait to talk about dignity with you next week. Just a few reminders for everyone before we give our thanks. We will be hosting a pilgrimage to the UK, reading and writing the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. There's also a Tarot as Sacred Practice class, and we will have new t-shirts coming out soon featuring my Patronus, the bear. Go to NotSorryWorks.com for more information on all of these things. Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company and has produced this podcast. Our executive producer is Ariana Nittleman. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Kate for her voicemail and for likening my co-host to the bard himself, William Shakespeare. Thanks this week also to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of your beloveds who have been lost. Argus felt, wow, it sounds like Dr. Seuss. Attracted, no doubt, by Malfoy's shout. Attracted, no doubt, by Malfoy's shout. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hold up. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.